Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. I'd like to go around and do group introductions. You could just say your first and last name, and also if you can identify yourself if you're here for the first time. <coughs> My name is Baruch Bolden. I'm Larry Wick. Douglas Hall. George Hubbard. CJ. Uh, Tim Cosgrove. Patty Gorman, I'm here for the first time. Jimmy Stewart Broadway. Chris Hoskins. Marlon Snow. Ron L. Mucher. I'm Carl Lowe. <coughs> I'm Brian Houston. Todd Pope. Yubu Yamaji. Richard Hedden. I'm Howard DeCourt. Peter Kumarda. Kirk Holland. Jerry Jones. Ray Dyer, Jack Busby, Chris Russo, Richard Azzolini, <coughs> David Axel, Clint Simon, Peter Washburn, Paul Shepard, Rick Rowland, Steve Carson, Jim Stewart, Roy Kane, Bill Childs, Jim Winters, Peter Dell, Mark McCollum, Michael Schuler, Harley Shapiro, Rich Baradan. Maya Dewar, I'm here for the first time. David Lewis. Michael Langdon. Anushka Fernandez-Bullet. <laughs> so, warm <coughs> welcome to those who are here for the first time. I'm very fortunate for our speaker today to have Anushka Fernandez-Bullet. She's practiced Dharma and the Theravada Buddhist tradition for over 15 years in meditation centers and monasteries in the U.S., India, and Sri Lanka. Longtime LGBT activist has worked in HIV prevention and education and was the director of the Boston Gay and Lesbian Helpline and was co-chair of the board of Tricone, South Asian Queer Group. Um, has very impressive degrees from Harvard and Yale, <laughs> and is currently in training as a Dharma teacher at Spirit Prof Meditation Center. Serves as the vice chair of the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So we really welcome you today. Thank you. <coughs> so it's also a, a great pleasure for me to get to be here today and uh, share some Dhamma with you. So some of you may have been um, wondering what school of Buddhism my sitting posture is from. <laughs> uh, obscure, smaller school. Uh, it's actually from the school of the injured uh, knee, uh, which is actually related to what I thought I would share with you uh, today about, which is uh, about dukkha. So translated pain, suffering, stress, variety of ways, um, since that's been... Uh, significant portion of my experience in the last few weeks. Uh, and also is uh, in Theravada Buddhism from the focus of the impetus of the um, path. And I think for many of us, 
is a great uh, driver of our spiritual practice. So the, uh, the story of the Buddha, which many of you regulars are probably very familiar with, is that he was a pretty privileged guy, <coughs> lived in northern India, um, had a good life, more wealthy family, had his winter palace, summer palace, spent his days doing archery and hanging around, listening to music and so on. Uh, and then... Um, I'm going to sort of paraphrase the story. He, he had uh, <clears throat> curiosity about the outside world, um, went into the world outside of the palace and saw people who were sick, uh, saw someone who was old, and saw someone, uh, a corpse, who had died. And uh, it caused him to uh, wonder a lot about life, cast him into some existential questions about life. What is there beyond this? What is the meaning, purpose, and so on. Uh, and then he saw also a spiritual practitioner, right? So someone like you and me, perhaps, except wearing orange robes, who had uh, cast their life into being a full-time spiritual practitioner, and he decided to join that quest. Right? So pre- learned various uh, meditation practices for many years um, from various teachers. Uh, didn't find the answers there. Finally kind of struck out on his own uh, and was able to break through and attain enlightenment, as it's called. So at that time, he's about 35. And uh, then he set about teaching uh, Dhamma for the next about uh, 45 years. So uh, his his original quest was about old age, sickness, and death. So understanding this. But so what happened to him? So let's see. So there are a lot of... uh, Buddhist scriptures in the Theravadan uh, tradition that have come down, so stories of what happened during his time. Many of them were related and include his attendant, who's a character named Ananda. So here's uh, one uh, portion of a story where uh, the Buddha has gone to uh, meditate, and then he, he comes out from seclusion in the evening, is sitting warming his back in the last rays of the sun, and then Venerable Ananda approaches him and pays homage. And he starts to massage his limbs. And then he says to him, It's amazing, sir. The Blessed One's complexion is no, no longer pure and bright. His limbs are flaccid and wrinkled. His body is stooped, and some alteration is seen in his faculties. So basically saying, You are old. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so he, you know, maybe he just noticed this, you know, someone you hang around with a lot. So. And the Buddha says, So it is, Ananda. In youth, one is subject to aging. In health, one is subject to illness. While alive, one is subject to death. So he too got old. He passed beyond in some way, and yet he too got old. Another uh, part of the story, he had gotten sick, and then he got better from that. Um, And Ananda was saying how happy he was that uh, the Buddha was better from being sick. And again, he replies to Ananda, Now I'm old, Ananda. Aged, burdened with, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage. My age is now turning 80. So he got old, right? Just as an old cart keeps going by a combination of straps, so it seems the body of the Tathagata, which is his body, keeps going by a combination of straps. So, uh, you know, he's feeling like he's, he's like strapped together, just, you know, <laughs> t- tied together at this point, too. So... 
this is the Buddha, so this is the supreme spiritual teacher here, right? uh, still experiencing these uh, uh, pain and suffering of the body in a certain way. So I think it's helpful to reflect on this because I think sometimes in uh, spiritual practice can uh, glide into this area in which you feel like, well, if I'm a really good spiritual practitioner, nothing bad will happen to me. You know, my life will be full of sunshine and rose petals, and everyone will be nice to me, and I will exude loving kindness. And, you know, children will be skipping and singing in my room. <laughs> and you know, you can see from the, if this is not happening to the uh, the Buddha, you know. Further events in his life, someone tried to kill him. His cousin tried to kill him. Uh, you know, he just, he, it, it wasn't all smooth sailing for him. You know, and this is really just a part of life. So, so what is this sort of transcendence that is offered in the Dhamma? You know, what is there, if anything? Um, so it's not that actually the, the body itself is going to live forever or always be fine. And my understanding of, uh, of Dhamma is that uh, you know, the, this is something that the Buddha has discovered and then uh, teaches, but it's something that's there for all of us. Right? So the more that we sort of align ourselves to the way things are, which is what the Dhamma is, basically the less suffering we'll have in our life. Yeah. And it's kind of like uh, just aligning yourself to any natural law, right? So say, for instance, the law of gravity. So if, we were to, if I was to want to place this glass in midair, you know, uh, it would drop right, and shatter, and the water would be all over the place. And it wouldn't be something personal to me, or uh, you know, because I did something wrong, or the universe hates me, or you know, anything like that. Like it's just a law, right? So most of us have learned to act in accordance with this law of gravity. So when we place glasses, we might place it on the surface or you know, on the table. Right? So similarly with the Dhamma, you know, it's the, there's natural law about how things occur, uh, and unfortunately for us, to some extent, in uh, Unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, in the world of samsara, pain of the body is not something that we can really escape. So to a greater or lesser extent, so sometimes some people have very uh, blessed lives, don't have it so much, but really, this is one of the vicissitudes of life. So you may have heard of this teaching of the eight uh, worldly winds, the lokadhamma, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So all of these are different uh, sort of winds that go through life. Sometimes there's pain in your life, sometimes pleasure. Sometimes you get things, sometimes you lose things. Sometimes you get a lot of praise, sometimes you don't. Sometimes there are a lot of people around you, sometimes not necessarily. Right? So how can we handle these changing winds of life? So my own experience uh, this uh, last month is that uh, I was playing soccer one day, happily, uh, <laughs> enjoying myself, and uh, in you know a couple of seconds, um, basically just shredded out my knee. Right? So I tore uh, you know out the ACL, meniscus, uh, you know the bones bumped against each other, got bruised, and uh, sprained most everything else. I mean, just about like a few seconds, boom. Right? And this this is this happens sometimes to us. Right? Uh, the immediate experience was of um, intense pain, right? uh, but actually, in some ways, a sort of almost transcendent um, pain. So I was sharing with my friends. It felt uh, I was usually I'm someone who kind of shakes things off and walk around, but 
with such intense pain that um, I just couldn't do that at all. Uh, so I was just lying in the grass, you know, grasping the grass and moaning for a good five, ten minutes. And uh, it felt like uh, actually an orgasm, but with pain. <laughs> it was like a pain-gasm. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, the people were talking to me, but I really couldn't uh, hear them or talk to them. It was just, you know, I had to drop into the direct experience of the sensations. Intense sensations which were painful, but actually there was something about the intensity that was very transcendent, too. So some of you can probably relate to that. Now, I don't recommend anyone tear their knee on have this kind of pain-gasm experience. But, uh, just to say, I was also very appreciative of the, um, the practice in this moment because I felt like I knew how to open to uh, intensity of unpleasant sensation. So this is really one of the ways in which we can deal with this in the world is... Um, through the practice of uh, something called bare attention. So just being with exactly what is. So in that moment, all that there was was these sensations, <coughs> right? physical sensations. They happen to be painful sensations, but actually in being able to open to them without some kind of story um, about it, uh, it actually was quite bearable and in fact somewhat transcendent. You know? So then later on, uh, you know, then the story comes in, what did I do to it? I wonder how badly it's hurt. Uh, you know, then the overlay of the story. But actually, in the direct experience of almost anything, there's not really a problem per se. You know, so even in the most intensely difficult situation, just dropping into that situation in the moment itself, there doesn't have to be a problem with something. Okay? And that's something that you can really go back to. You know, like dropping into the direct experience of a situation. Right? On top of that is usually our overlays, many of which are. Um, uh, worry, fear, anxiety, sometimes blame, and so on. Right? Um, but just to drop into the direct experience of things. Right? So I was um, I was talking with um, my Dharma friend about this situation. Um, a Dharma friend who's had some uh, difficulty in life too, in the form of uh, uh, breakup. And uh, so we we're talking about different ways in which we can frame, uh, use our Dharma practice to help us. Uh, with difficulties of life. And I think the two situations are ones that are common um, experiences of dukkha. So one of the characteristics that you notice in the Dhamma as uh, is taught by the Buddha is that everything is changing. So everything is changing in our minds, body, experience, sensations, constant change. And yet, if there's something pleasant that happens, we want it to stay. So, uh, you know, we can drop into the experience of pleasantness, but there's a part of us that is, like, lurching for it, you know, reaching out for it, and then more than reaching, sort of, like, you know, like, grasps, clings around that, right? And that's really part of the recipe for suffering. When you're grasping at something that is impermanent, that is going to change. Then on the other side of that, everything is um, changing, and sometimes the change brings you something unpleasant, right? Like busted knee or, you know, broken car or any number of things, bad weather. Um, and then we want to push it away, you know. We, we don't want that thing. So uh, we lurch away from it, right? So then that lurching away also is an experience of suffering, right? So part of it is, I think, being able to develop the capacity to just be with what is and also being able to see when is it that we're making some larger story around it, you know, a bigger story that creates some additional pain. 
So sometimes in the Buddhist teaching is talked about as the second arrow. So the first arrow that happens is that something happens that's difficult and bad, right? So uh, you get injured, right? Um, something gets taken away from you. Something breaks. Um, someone you love dies, right? So that's difficult in life, right? But in, it's actually bearable, you know, if you can just drop into that experience. Right? The second arrow that we shoot is the story about it all. So that's the added suffering that our own mind creates around something. Right? So you just have to learn how to catch yourself in doing that and then uh, sort of let go of that story. Right? And there's a, there's a line between you know, the kind of thinking that tells you, like, I need to go to the doctor, right? But you, know, you only need to think that once and then set that plan into motion versus... I need to go to the doctor. I'm probably going to die. You know, like making a whole, you know, long uh, string of it from that way. So I thought I'd share a few reflections that uh, thought about from uh, dealing with dukkha. So one is that oftentimes, you know, we frame events. So something will happen, for instance, having an injury like this, and we frame it as, you know, this is bad news, right? This is, I mean, so clearly pain is not, you know, something that you would uh, give to someone. It's not great. But uh, just to question the notion of good news, bad news, right? So there's a story, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember where I've heard this story from, where you know, there's a guy who's going on a plane, and then the plane, um, and something goes on, problem with the engine, right? So that's bad news. Good news is he has a parachute, right? He jumps out of a plane with the parachute. Bad news, parachute doesn't work. <laughs> good news, he spots a haystack. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Starts to aim for the haystack. Bad news is haystack has a pitchfork in it. <laughs> Good news is he misses the pitchfork. Bad news, he misses the haystack. <laughs> so breaks his leg, um, and so that seems like bad news. Um, is taken home, but then uh, there is a conscription for the army. But because he broke his leg, he's not able to be drafted. So that's good news. So you know, it kind of goes on like that. Right? <laughs> Uh, so basically, you know, we don't really know. I mean, we know the immediate event that has happened, and we know the sensations, but in the bigger scheme of things, you know, you don't really know. Um, so I was looking at someone's... Um, uh, someone was telling me that they, you know, they missed a flight, and then it turned out to be a flight that actually crashed, right? right? So, you know, in the moment of missing that flight, it seemed like extremely bad news. They were very frustrated with themselves and so on, and then, you know, it turned out to, in the bigger scheme of things to be good news, right? Um, so not to be sort of Pollyannaish about things, but it's just that you know we don't really know. We think we know, and uh, you know then we create the story around something that adds something to it. But you know we don't really know. So just to hold sometimes that not knowing in the bigger picture. Right? Another angle is actually to um, see, sort of see the the positive angles on things, and there's a variety of ways. So when I sort of account your blessings thing. So I have to say that since I am not able to walk, uh, I really noticed the um, uh, other abilities that I have. Like I'm very grateful that I, my hands work, <laughs> you know, and that I can see. And uh, uh, you know, I've been been hobbling around in my apartment on crutches, and uh, but you know, noticing like oh, it'd be, it was so much harder if I didn't have the use of my right arm or if I couldn't um, hear or something like that. So these are really all things that I took for granted until I busted my leg, you know, uh, being able to walk. And most of us take for granted so many things in our life, right? So sort of the counting your blessings thing. Um, 
but not to do that in a way to push away the pain also. I mean, I think that it's important to open to difficulty that is there in your life. And particularly in opening to it to also hold your suffering with compassion. So this is another helpful technique in these cases. Is um, Just as you might wish compassion for someone else who's going through a hard time, you can also hold your own life in that compassionate light. So, may I be free from suffering. Now, this is difficulty. Let's try to hold with open heart in one's own experience that. So uh, another area one can stray into with uh, pain and uh, suffering of this sort is um, several areas that, that come around sort of becoming egotistical about it. So when is the why me, right? So something bad happens to you. It could be even something small, right? Flat tires, something like, why me? Why today, right? So you notice that you don't ask this when good things happen to yourself. <laughs> 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 you know. Why me? Why did someone give me flowers? Why, why, am I, why am I seeing this beautiful sunshine? Why, why have I been born this beautiful day, right? So, you know, uh, that's a clue that there's some uh, ego <laughs> around that question. I mean, why not you, right? <laughs> why not me, you know? <laughs> Sometimes I think of um, our lives as like this cartoon, Mr. Magoo. Do you remember Mr. Magoo? Yeah. So Mr. Magoo is like a kind of blind, small uh, guy. He's probably the 60s or 70s, this cartoon. So in the opening sequence of Mr. Magoo's cartoon, he's walking down the street, and um, he's just kind of oblivious, you know, but around him are all these things that are, like, about to kill him, basically. <laughs> so, you know, he sees something shiny, you know, on the ground, he bends down to pick it up, and then, you know, a beam from a construction thing just swings. You know? <laughs> that would have totally taken him out, you know. Then he gets up, and he toodles along his way, and then, he, you know, he... he um, he stops and he hears something behind him and then like a piano crashes in front of him. So if he had continued walking, the piano would have, you know. So, you know, in some ways this is kind of like us. Like there's really so many ways that we could be injured, harmed, you know, die. And which people, so many people do, you know. I mean, every day you're reading the newspaper, different things happen to people through nature, through people hurting each other and so on. Uh, so, you know, most of those days we don't read in the newspaper and say, why not me today? Why wasn't that me? You know, so <laughs> it's just good to, you know, check ourselves when we go into the why me place of that. Another part of it is that, you know, we have the um, kind of, you can kind of collapse into it. So this is like, it's good to drop into the sensations of it, but sometimes you can sort of expand that and start to feel really sorry for yourself, like, you know, the wallowing in self-pity place about it. Uh, and I think this is like, you know, the, the knife edge of trying to hold your suffering and hold it with compassion, but not falling into the wallowing in self-pity place. Or if you do, just notice that you're doing that, and, you know, wallow a little while, but try to, you know, lead yourself um, out of that in some way. So sometimes it's also seeing the big picture. So like in the big picture sequence of your life, something that's happened that seems like a big deal. Um, you know, sometime for now, it'll be like, oh yeah, I just had that flat tire that day. Or, you know, um, I remember that time when I lost my job and it was, it was a difficult time. But, you know, if you live another 20 years, that's another, just another piece of your life in some way, even though it feels like, um, you know, in the moment, like uh, epic, tragic drama. So looking for the opportunities from the situation, too. Um, so I actually have found, as I've been cooped up in my apartment, I've been sort of like uh, very reliant on friends to take care of me. 
Um, so I live in, uh, fortunately I like my apartment, uh, but I live um, alone. And so uh, you know, I've been relying on all my friends and neighbors to bring me food and clean my apartment, and get my mail, and you know, do all this stuff. And I found that actually, usually I lead a very active life in which I run around and do stuff. And in this period of time, I've just been able to hang out with people just because I can't do anything else. You know? And it's actually brought a very nice um, ability to connect with a lot of friends and connect with people's lives because I'm not as busy. So I think in any uh, situation that has a, a difficult side, there often is some side that's sort of a positive side if you can open up to it. Right. So there's also is seeing the uh, seeing the pleasant in the unpleasant. So in uh, in Buddhist teaching, you know, something comes up and it usually there's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? But I think that sometimes there's a different angle you can look at something that seems very pleasant, that actually uh, you can see an unpleasant side. Something that's unpleasant, you can see a sort of a pleasant side of it, right? Um, so, uh, example in the, in Buddhist teaching, the the monks are often taught uh, as an anecdote to sort of lust, and actually even lay people are taught um, to contemplate the body as just sort of a generic like body, right? So you go through 32 parts of the body. So you're taught to contemplate head, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinew, right? So it's not that romantic, right? The object of your attention, who looks very uh, beautiful and romantic, when you kind of break it down in this way to their uh, constituent parts, you know, it's just it's just what it is. So it's not necessarily that you have to be repulsed by them, but uh, you know, like if you see hair that's your beloved's hair and you think it's really beautiful, but then you see it cut on the barbershop floor, you know, it's not quite as beautiful, usually, right? Kind of a wad of hair. So similar to that, you know, you can you can uh, kind of bring balance to unpleasant or pleasant situation by seeing the other side in something. Right? If that's not clear, I can say more about that, but I'll sort of leave it at that. Also helpful is to um, see insight into your life pattern. So I think these moments when we're forced to deal with suffering are really great moments for a spiritual practitioner. So. One is because it kicks you in the pants. So, you know, times that you might have been sort of complacently going along in your life, it gives you a little juice to struggle and uh, find your way back to the path. But also it's really a good opportunity to see ways in which you are habitually caught or ways in which you might habitually deal with suffering. So do I tend to go into self-pity? Do I tend to go into sort of an isolation place when I'm in suffering? do I have this um, tendency to uh, expect others to take care of me and then feel bad for myself when I don't hear from them? You know, like whatever it is that are one's patterns, sometimes you can see them highlighted more when things aren't going bad at well. You know, it's kind of like a, a spotlight shown on those things. Yeah, so some of these are like sort of things to do with time, uh, looking at different different advantages of time. Some of them are about you know framing, reframing it away from yourself. Um, some of it is about taking the view, you know, what what angle of view, the narrow view, wide view. Right? Uh, 
So maybe I'll leave it at that. I'll open it for people to ask questions, make comments. I feel like this is an area in which all of us as humans have experience. So if you have some particular ways in which you've dealt with uh, pain and suffering in your life that's been helpful, you can share that. Or if you have any questions about things that were unclear. Yes? There was a moment in my life, maybe six years ago, when I received a very, for the first time in my life, and I received a sort of major diagnosis of something that was potentially <coughs> was life-threatening. And um, one of the experiences I had was that I wanted to let myself fully experience what that was like. Because most of the people in my family are doctors, they didn't want me and didn't want themselves to really feel. And so there's enormous pressure on me you know, to do something. I was actually given a certain period of time, three months. So I allowed myself a full three months, sort of before I selected the treatment and stuff. And one of my friends said to me, and it was really a very magical moment for me, when he said to me, what is the use all the meditation you've done, and, you know, all of the spiritual work you've done, <clears throat> you're having such a hard time. And I just thought that was so interesting, that that was his experience of me. My experience was actually a little different, which was more that there was just a whole inner world that this brought up the first time in my life, that I had to deal with uh, mortality, my own mortality and vulnerability in this way. And I really wanted to have that. Of course, I didn't want to die. But I also wanted to have the fullness. But from outside, evidently it looked like great irresponsibility. Mm -hmm. I just found that really interesting, a really interesting sort of gift to me to be able to hold those different perspectives and stuff. I think it's also good not to buy into you know, other people's perceptions of this and that because I mean, sometimes you are having a hard time but you're having less of a hard time than you would have had if you didn't have any spiritual practice to, to hold you, you know, to. Of course. And ways. the other thing is that for somebody like me anyway, having a hard time is actually part of life. It isn't something that's outside of my life. Mm -hmm. I have had hard times before and yeah. I have no doubt I will have hard times again. And this was an opportunity in a kind of not something I would choose, but something that was there. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And can you talk a little more about um, the kind of uh, maybe some of the struggle you had with grasping for like what your life would have been a few seconds before the injury and wanting yeah. to play soccer still at this point and be active and so mm -hmm. on. And also the aversion part. Um, around recognizing the illness and so on. And just, you know, kind of in a practical way, how did you, yeah. how did your practice help you to deal with both sides? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, definitely there's part, I feel like whenever something bad happens, like, well, how could it not have happened? Or, you know, what could I have done to make it not happen, right? So instant replay kind of thing. And, oh, if I only had not gone to practice that day, if only had not done this, I could have done that, and so on. And um, I think I just try not to entertain that. I mean, I think there's there's some help in looking at what are the causes and conditions that created this, right? So, uh, you know, if it's that, um, you know, I got into this car accident, I was drinking and driving, that was that was a foolish thing to do, right? That were some of the conditions that caused 
the um, accident, right? Then it's like, all right, that's something that I should avoid doing. Okay, and move on, you know. So there's a way in which we can really like um, proliferate on those things. So I saw myself doing that, like, oh, well, why did I decide to do this and that, and you know, <clears throat> what if this and so on. So you know, just looked and say, was well, there anything in those conditions that I can learn from? Things that I need to learn that I should avoid this. This would be better to do, you know, so on. And then, um, you know, as much as possible, once what can be learned is learned from that, let it go, because you know, you're not changing anything by proliferating on that. It's just like proliferation, you know, making yourself uh, more agitated. And uh, you know, interesting the the uh, the wanting to be active and so on. Yeah, I mean, I actually love playing sports. I love being outside. It's springtime now, so definitely some you know wanting to do that. And um, some friends of mine uh, had uh, told me that they were going to you know play in this game and all this stuff and. I think in, in those cases, it's helpful to turn, uh, again, sort of away from the self to a sort of like the sympathetic joy angle on things. So uh, there's a teaching of loving kindness, right? So general well-wishing for others. You know, that just as I want to be happy, other beings want to be happy, right? So in cases when someone is suffering, then the angle that it takes is of compassion. So you may be free from suffering. You know, if I understand, I feel that suffering, may you be free from suffering. And then if someone is happy, actually the angle it takes is that you can actually be happy for someone else's happiness. So even if you can't play soccer, you can actually be happy for someone else's soccer joy. So the Dalai Lama says this uh, sympathetic joy, cultivating this quality in oneself, increases one's chances for happiness by six billion to one. (laughs) So, you know, if you're only happy when good things happen to you, then, uh, you know, good luck. You get, sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. But if you can actually cultivate this quality of being happy when other people are having joy, then um, you have opened yourself to a whole lot more joy, really. And you can do this as simply as, you know, if you see someone walking down the street who seems to be um, smiling and enjoying the day, just, you know, feeling happy for that happiness, right? Sometimes it's easier with, uh, you know, like dogs. They're very obvious when they're happy, right? (laughs) Wag their tail vigorously. Like, it just makes you happy. Or if you're someone who likes to see um, little kids who are very joyful or something like that, just, you know, allowing yourself to open to that. So again, it's taking yourself out of the, the ego position, like, well, I wish I was that happy as that dog. Like, what, you know, <laughs> this like, oh, the happiness. Like, you can kind of look into that. So I guess that's how I try and deal with those things. Yes. I uh, I really enjoyed your talk. I the the simple principles that you're speaking about that I've heard, you know, in other Buddhist talks just seem so unbelievably obvious to me. And you know, I mean, there's no refuting them. You know, in any conversation with anybody in any practice, to, to me, but that's my centric view of the world or something. I don't know. Uh, one of the things when I hear your um, accident, it really uh, strikes and scares me. Because I'm just as vulnerable a human being as you are, so that adds to part of my compassion. But it really like flips me out when I hear of something like this. And so I'm sorry that you're suffering, you know, or that you're limited in some ways from it. I'm glad that you have the uh, broadness to see the good in it as well. I, uh, when I was going through a cancer experience that was pretty difficult, but it, it very much brought me into the moment. And now when I even think about it, I think fondly in some ways about it. But in the middle of it, um, as if things weren't bad enough, I broke my arm. 
So it's like, here I was, and I broke my arm by trying to put something in one of my IV things, and it wasn't going in, so I forced it, and I actually pushed with such strength that I cracked the arm, the other arm, because it was, I don't know what the fuck was going on, anyway. (laughs) It was just this very weird feeling right when it happened, uh, was like, uh, I mean, it hurt enough initially, but then my mind jumped to, oh shit, this is going to like take a long time to get over too, right. you know? Right. And so we're talking about making those kind of stories. You can just kind of, you know, really go with it. And the amount of human connection and compassion and depth that I experienced from the entire uh, experience of being ill and, and hurt was so valuable to me. You know, I, I really appreciate the, you know, falling out of the plane and the stack and the, you know, the yay, boo, yay, boo kind of thing, because that's basically it. And now I have the great fortune of, uh, my, my, I've heard Duke be called um, unsatisfactoriness, and I really like that particular version of it rather than suffering, mm-hmm. uh, because unsatisfactoriness can happen on all different levels. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been doing the last couple of years is dancing. And I'm taking a lot of joy in the fact that I'm making progress, but one of the, when I think that I had a cancer circumstance where I could barely get out of bed, and my unsatisfactoriness now is that I'm not a good enough leader, speaking about this stuff just really helps and makes, it's a great perspective, it's a terrific Buddhist perspective, and, and I thank you for sharing. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, also this this event in my life also came on the heels of a lot of different difficult um, health situations and other situations over the years. So when it happened, I was also like, "Oh, come on, like, oh, <laughs> please!" You know, I mean, so one thing is just having a sense of humor about things too. I mean, sometimes it's just ridiculous. Like your life just keeps dealing you cards, and it's like. Um, but I feel like the other piece that practices helped me with is just that. I mean, you kind of have to eat what's on your plate, you know. I mean, you can you can struggle with it and uh, you know play with your food or whatever. You know? uh, I mean, at the end of the day, like it's it's not good. this is what it is. You know, this, here's what it is. This is what your life is right now. And um, uh, you know, you can wish it was something else and feel like you know I shouldn't have to deal with this or whatever. But that, this is what it is. So I think the sooner that one can sort of gracefully come to accept that and then deal with that, also the less suffering. And that's again the second arrow is like not wanting to see what's on your plate, either pretending it's not there, you know, um, or uh, struggling with it um, for a lot before you actually, you know, try to sit down and, and work with it. Um, but it's a challenge. I mean, I I think by and large I've had it, uh, been able to maintain, like, fairly good perspective on this, but um, actually the piece that uh, totally broke me down is dealing with the healthcare system, which is, like, incredibly frustrating, you know, more frustrating than getting injured in itself. So it brought me to tears one day. Uh, but, you know, then it was just like, you know, this is, I, I just felt, tried to feel compassion for me. It's incredibly frustrating, like, to try to deal with something like this, and it's just part of the human condition, too, you know. Um, and then sort of broadening that, again, away from the sort of ego perspective, like, why is it so hard for me? But, you know, it's hard for people, you know? I mean, this is a really hard part of... It's a hard part of our life that we're all vulnerable like this. So I feel like that allows me to tap into that more. And then um, it's just hard to deal with any of these things in general. So, you know, at the, at the moment, it, it certainly has made me much more compassionate towards anyone who has some 
difficulty in mobility, you know, much more than I had before, too. So I think just trying to universalize a little bit, too, helps. Yeah. Well, I just, you're, I really enjoyed your words, and I want to thank you. Um, my daughter, who's back at home, uh, 24-year-old, um, talks to me a lot and always is asking about this boyfriend who's a lovely man and, you know, is it going to last and what if it doesn't? And I keep saying live in the moment. What difference does it make? What may or may not happen? You don't know. But I like what you said, and I keep saying the same thing over and over. <laughs> I keep telling her I'm going to turn on the tape recorder next time. <laughs> and, but I like what you said about, uh, oh, now I forgot the words. Um, this story, is it, was that what you said? Story, yeah. Forget about the story that you create because that's what she's doing. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and, and it's that's so much of what we create as the suffering too. Yeah, um, and we don't even see it sometimes. I mean, there's a story in the Buddhist teaching of someone who's painting. I think it's a Zen story. He paints a tiger on the wall of a cave, and then he gets scared by the tiger and runs away. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, but that's really is what we do. Like if you watch your mind, you know, like you feel maybe um, you know one twinge in your um, in your ankle, and then. You know, even when you're sitting here in meditation, and then a whole story will come up about the, you know, how you won't be able to move that in a future injury, and you know, you make a whole humongous thing about it, and really all it was was just boom, you know, that was it, boom, <laughs> you know. So we make these stories and then scare ourselves with them. Um, so you know, and we don't have to do that. Like there's enough, there's enough suffering in the first level <laughs> to deal with. So yeah. Um, also, thank you. Um, I was in the hospital just this Thursday for surgery number five for my retina detached a year and a half ago and five surgeries later and one thing you learn is patience. I think we're the generation that grew up with quick fixes and I'm surprised it took that long and I just want to put out a word for the importance of community or at least close friends because there's a period where you get about two weeks of sympathy for most people, and that's over. <laughs> and you don't want to become the victim or the whiner. And, and like at work, if people say, how's your eye? They don't really want the long answer. I, I kind of have to say, well, they're still working on it. Um, I don't want to lie, but... Yeah. And this whole, the whole language we have for our bodies about it failed us, it betrayed us. And mm-hmm. I don't, luckily I don't feel that. I feel like, you know, I have a spare. This I work. Well, once you're over 40, things will begin to fail. And that's, again, the way it is. It's not a judgment. I mean, it really is. I think our generation, especially with a certain amount of economic privilege, We've been immune, I've been immune from a lot of this, and it's eye-opening that the body begins to do this, and I'm just really glad that it is the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It is. Things are going to begin to fall apart, and it's like the flowers you bring home from the forest a week later. Mm-hmm. Well, but they were pretty the first time because, you know, they're not going to last. Mm-hmm. Wax flowers are not pretty. Right. So far, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just <laughs> the other thing too is to give ourselves time to process this because there are moments where it just wears out. Yeah. There are some parts of this treatment that were very difficult to yeah. go through, and there are times you just cry, and yeah. the person who can watch you cry go and yeah. be there. Like those moments of despair in it. Right. 
but a week later you kind of go, oh, that was then, and, and right. it is eating what's on your plate and acceptance, and, and I'm glad I have health insurance. I'm glad that right. I'm a teacher, so I don't get a lot of money, but we do have good benefits. And right. without that, it would have been a whole different story. And that's another level is of the acceptance of, you know, acceptance of what is, is of other people's support or not support right. in any difficult circumstance. Uh, and trust they mean well. Yeah. It's just that there are different levels of what people can hear and give. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, the hospital waiting rooms. An, an mm-hmm. eye doctor's waiting room is a very interesting place because we're all, I can see somebody by the number of bandages and by how low they're bent over, I can guess where they are in their yeah. healing. And it's, it's kind of nice to just, like you said, I don't wish it on anybody, but there is a sense of welcome to the human race. Mm-hmm. You know, this stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. Why did we think we got a pass on this? And it's a story that's not told in the media in a certain way. I mean, in sort of like the glamorization and for Hollywood or, you know, I, I live in the, kind of this area past that gay.com sign at uh, 16th and Market, you know, like really healthy, good-looking, buff guys <laughs> there. And, uh, you know, they don't show people with eye bandages or busted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, <laughs> someone in the hospital bed, gay.com, right? <laughs> like, you want to hook up with this guy, right? <laughs> that's part of it too yeah yeah thank you so much for sharing your individual uh, situation and how we all have these problems I'd like to hear if you could share with us some of your practice how it helped you with your participation in the AIDS crisis which you know is such and well still is but has been such a huge amount of pain and suffering and for such a huge group and how you how your practice helped you get through that and part- and still continue to yeah. be in the middle of it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my work um, had been in the um, earlier 90s in um, HIV prevention education, and then now my work is actually with um, I do support for nonprofits um, to in an organization called Compass Point Nonprofit Services. So we support through consulting and training nonprofits. So actually, yesterday I was um, supporting. Uh, Tenderloin Health, in fact, their new uh, merged organization. So it still is very much a part of my life in that. And um, uh, I think the practice was really has been really, really helpful in that. I mean, particularly in um, looking at the questions of suffering, death, um, also at just injustice in the world. I mean, yes. there's there's really so much uh, around the epidemic that has to do with uh, in terms of homophobia, in terms of uh, people who are uh, low income or <coughs> homeless, like a lot of stigma. I mean, there's just it's just like, been very deep for me to be part of that and to, to uh, connect with the suffering of people's lives in that and also try to move that forward. So I think that's there's also sort of the impetus of doing, doing, doing work, the practice, of not just doing the practice of we'll drop into the sensations of the moment, but sort of taking on compassionate action in the world. You know, using that to move uh, oneself towards uh, trying to make things better or, um, in ways that one can be helpful in the world. I feel like I'm not that articulate about that at the moment, but uh, it, it definitely has been a huge piece of uh, my life. Um, and also I think at that time we've been seeing and knowing a lot of people who 
were not of the age that you, know, you were supposed to get sick and die, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people who were younger were supposed to be healthy and supposed to be, you know, um, friends um, who were going through hard times with that. So I think both being able to share even some Dhamma teachings with them, you know, not necessarily in like some big Pali kind of way, but just, you know, in a very simple way, I think has also been helpful for people to connect with. Um, and generally I found with my peers that uh, sort of a lot of people in their, when they're in their 20s, they're kind of having a good time and then various things started to hit, you know, in life. So difficulty of their own health, um, HIV, AIDS, uh, Difficulty in their family, and then you know people start their search for some meaning or some way to deal with that. Um, so even I think sharing whatever is helpful for you in the spiritual path can be helpful to others. Can you also share what the Buddhist Peace Fellowship is and does yes. and activities? And I can. Why <laughs> <laughs> would you be willing to say something? Um. Sure. There happens to be the executive director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship yeah. <laughs> sitting right in front of us, who's in fact much more articulate than me about this. So. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> um, well, Buddhist Peace Fellowship is a, it's a national organization that just coincidentally happens to have its office in Berkeley, so you can find us in the Bay Area. But we have about 4,000 members across the United States. And um, the mission of BPF is, is basically to just serve as a place for people to um, experiment with ways to bring together our Dharma practice with social change work. And the, the, some of the big things that we focus on, one is around peace and justice issues, peace especially, and in particular how to, um, you know, sort of the triage question right now is how to end this war in Iraq, bring the troops home, and you know, the larger issue around that is how, how resources get allocated in this country so much towards militarism and, you know, hardly anything towards things that really nourish people in in our country and other parts of the world. So, um, you know, trying to have a presence at vigils and also doing things to lobby and advocate for the end of the war and to prevent an attack on Iran. We also have a transformative justice program. It used to be the prison program. We're giving it a more positive name now. Um, do a lot of work with guys who are inside, also women as well, to bring meditation inside prisons and, and Dharma practice and books. Um, but our new focus there is, is something called the Coming Home Project which will be a place, uh, a drop-in center, a meditation center for people who are coming out of prison who've been practicing Dharma on the inside to come out, have a place to connect spiritually with each other, and also receive other kinds of support like community referrals, um, and to connect with sanghas that are out here too, and to do a lot of education with sanghas about what these people really need to come back into society successfully. Where will that visit be? Uh, we're going to start it in Berkeley in our office. We're actually looking for a larger space, but probably in May we'll have a, a grand opening for that. Yeah, so those are just some of the things that we do. Can, can you talk a little bit about Susan Moon and the different writing group, where those uh, groups, some people from this group have been through those programs, and I have some personal interest in it. You, you know, do you mean the base group? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there's also something called Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, which is BASE for short. Um, and BASE groups, they're, they're about six months long. They're usually on a, a theme. I think the ones you might be talking about, there have been base groups that have been focused on like communication and writing. But there are also base groups of people who happen to work with you know, homeless individuals or um, people who are teachers. And, and basically, people come together for six months. They meet weekly. They have retreats monthly. And it's a, again, it's a place to, to find out how our practice informs our work in the world. Um, so those come up occasionally in the Bay Area. And we have a website where there's a lot more information. 
That's the nutshell version. Thanks, Maya. I just yeah. want to share that the, it's, you know how things happen. Uh, uh, you have 4,001 members. My check is in my briefcase. Excellent. You can save a postage. For me, my coming out was concurrent with my starting intensive practice and um, also a lot of activism, queer activism, HIV AIDS activism. And I remember at one point seeing someone who was very senior in the movement, uh, you know, at HIV AIDS speak, and um, he was a bitter, bitter guy, you know? And, uh, you know, it just really struck me, like, that is not what I want to be in 40 years. You know, I mean, where is this going? Like, is there a different way to hold this and to do this really important work and not become this really um, angry, bitter, really unhappy person, you know, who is, you know, maybe been effective in some ways, but also he's not inspiring me. You know, I mean, he's inspiring me to like run the other way. This whole movement. So, you know, connecting. Um, what is a way that we can um, be in activism and be in social change in a way that feels consistent with our values too, with sort of for ourselves and for others. So that, I think that's been part of my journey with it. So that we've run out of time, and I know that you'll be here because you're dependent on someone to take you. <laughs> 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 Yes, yes. Um, anyway, um, I'd like to ask the host to speak. Is there a host today? Uh, yes, I'm the substitute host this morning. <laughs> uh, uh, welcome to GBF, and also I'd like to invite all of you to stay for our social hour, which will immediately follow uh, the program, and enjoy some cookies and tea. And if you do have some tea, uh, we ask you to wash your cups and put them back. Uh, we also have a Danable out there, uh, and suggested donation is five to eight dollars. Uh, but you know, that we gladly accept whatever is more or less than that amount, and and we do appreciate your help in keeping this organization going. And if you like to stay in touch with this group, please uh, leave your street address and email address on the sign-up sheet so that we can stay in touch with you and you can also receive our future uh, newsletters. And finally, uh, there usually is a group of people who go out and have lunch and the group typically forms outside of, uh, on the street around 12.30. Uh, so, but if you're interested in going to uh, have lunch with the group, please let me know uh, so that I can pick you up with the group who may be going to lunch. So again, welcome and thank you. And are there any announcements? Yes. Yeah, next week our speaker is Bonnie Johnson, who is, uh, leads workshops in the program called Year to Live, which is using um, um, the idea of the approach to death to inform spiritual practice, and she's going. She's uh, writing a book about that, and um, she will be speaking on that. You are an amazing speaker, Gary. Yes. today, tonight, around 5 o'clock, there are some flyers still on the table out there. It's up at the intersection of Corbett and Clayton, so it's just right over there in the lower Twin Peaks area. You can take a 33 or a 37 bus, bring some food, uh, hang out, enjoy. Uh, I'll be making my uh, world-famous organic red pasta sauce and pasta. And uh, just come and join us around five o'clock. And then, like I said, there's some flyers left out there. 
Yeah, just a reminder that uh, the latest gay Buddhist directory, um, there's a copy out there. If you would just check it to see if the information is correct. I'd like to have next Sunday be the last time to check it over, and I'd like to, you know, reprint it and distribute it the first Sunday in May. So it's out there by the downfall. Yeah, I just wanted to say I <coughs> just got through um, major surgery, and I uh, <coughs> put it out to the sangha that I would appreciate, you know, support, and uh, and I did get. Uh, a lot of phone calls and visits and uh, some meals and um, I just encourage people to plug into the Sangha. I mean this is uh, a group and I found out that people uh, really like to help other people and I'm, I do too, you know, so, but it was hard for me to ask and um, it made me feel more connected to the Sangha than I had. Mm-hmm. Are there any other announcements? Then I will have a closing, and I want to, I neglected to thank you so much for the talk. Very appreciate it. So, have a closing circle. So we can reflect with appreciation for our efforts coming here on Sunday morning spending time in fellowship reflecting on Dhamma practicing meditation may the merits from our practice be shared with all beings. May all beings be happy. May all beings know peace. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings avoid shooting the second arrow. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.